Now the last three weeks we had been going through the Sundays in the Advent and uh, the first figure we touched on was John the Baptist and then Zechariah and last week Mary and we're going to move into an important figure this morning but before that could we turn to Matthew chapter 1 first book of the New Testament Matthew chapter 1 If you are new to church this morning, I just want to welcome all of you who are here for the first time. Welcome. Matthew chapter 1, reading from verse 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now I'd like to read verse 21 again because that's our text this morning. You see the name Jesus in your text? You see a little alphabet there? And at the bottom of the footnote it gives you the other name. So I'll read it with the other name. She will give birth to a son and you are to call his name Emmanuel because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, and you will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But as he had no union with her, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of God. Shall we pray? Lord, speak to us this is the word we ask. Enlighten us, illumine our minds, open our hearts, we, we ask, that we may behold wondrous things from your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you were to be asked, what's the clearest meaning of Christmas? I wonder what your answer would be. Just what is the clearest meaning of Christmas? How, how do you encapsulate that in one sentence? Well, I want to throw a challenge out to us. I want to say that the meaning of Christmas is nothing short of this. And that is God himself, the supreme sovereign God becomes human. That's all. That's the meaning of Christmas. That the sovereign, mighty, holy God envelops himself in human flesh and becomes a human person. What is called by theologians the incarnation. That's the meaning of Christmas. Now, you know something? This is the first time Jesus is introduced in the entire New Testament. And you know something? This is the Old Testament in my Bible. This is Matthew. So this is the New Testament. 
26 verses into the New Testament and you get it declared so clearly, Jesus is God. 23 rather. 20, 23 verses into the New Testament. Just 23 verses into the New Testament and you get it declared so blatantly, Jesus is God. Now some people have questioned whether in fact the Bible ever presents Jesus to be God. Have you ever thought of that? People have provoked us. People have asked us, does the Bible really teach that Jesus is God? Is there a verse where we find Jesus himself standing up and saying, I am God? Is there such a verse? Well, there isn't. Well, if there isn't, how is it that we've come to worship him? Is Jesus really God? That's the question. Is Jesus really God? First, I want to make a crucial point really crucial. And that is this. The issue is really not so much that Jesus said that he is God, when you come to think of it. The issue really is that there were even Jewish followers who believed that he was God. Now this is something quite incomprehensible, that Jews should look upon a human person and deem that person to be God. So that's the real issue. It's not that Jesus claimed to be God. It's that there were even followers, Jewish people, who believed that he was God. You know, you and I sometimes make the mistake of thinking that people in the olden days, they weren't as, as critical in their thinking. They were gullible. They were easily manipulated. And so, you know, they just believed this man when he claimed to be God. You know something? Nothing could be further from the truth. Let's stop thinking that ancient people are gullible, that they're not critical in their thinking. We've got to understand this. Now, this is something I discovered this week for myself, and that is this. The last group of person on earth that would ever believe that a human person could really be God were the Jews. They were fiercely, fiercely, fiercely monotheistic. God alone, Yahweh alone is God. No one else could be God. We live in a time where people around us New Ages, Hindus, believe because they are pantheists that God is everywhere, that God could be in you. Shirley MacLaine, the actress, is, and our God is so much a part of her and she's so much a part of God. So we are surrounded by a culture that easily sees God in human people, in trees, in rocks, in fire, in water, in the wind. But we forget that the average Jew Whoa, this is anathema to them. This, this, this is so far removed from their thinking that God could be found in a human person. The Greeks may have a pantheon of gods and goddesses. Romans, the Romans too, believe that God, is, God could be found in the emperor. The emperor could be called God. Uh, but the Jews, the Jews were never pantheists. The Jews were never polytheists. Never. These things are far from their mind. They believe in the God of Judaism. They believe that there is only one God. You know, they would recite the Shema that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 two times at least a day. That is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Fiercely, fiercely monotheistic, the Jews. God alone is 
It's a non-negotiable doctrine. So the point I want to make is this. The last group of people on earth who would ever come to believe that Jesus is God were the Jews. And yet the Jews came to believe that he is God. Now this is something we need to wrestle with. The Jews risk becoming a social outcast if they tempered with this major doctrine that God is one. In fact, the average Jew would risk being damned in hell if they would so far as look upon a human person and consider that person to be God. Now, in the light of this, for them to believe that Jesus is God, they must have seen something that really blew their mind. They must have seen in this one man that his claims matched with his character. You know, you and I read the New Testament and so many times we come across that phrase, who is this man? Who is he? Who is Jesus? What they are really saying is, what is the rational answer that can fit and match with this, the things that he claimed him, himself to be? This man could not have just been a good man. He couldn't have just been a great man because of his claim to be God. So either he is who he says he is, or he's a liar, or he's deluded, he's crazy. There could be no other rational answer to the quandary about this man. As insane as it may sound to conclude that he is God, all other alternatives are even more insane. Come to think of that. So the question we need to ask, and I like to ask that question this morning, is is he really God? Is Jesus really God? Now, there are passages we could go through, and we will, some of them. But you know something? The Gospel writers sometimes just drop a hint. They want to provoke you to read that verse and to go away to think about what that verse seems to be saying. You know, in numerous places in the Bible, the Gospel writers, they use very creative ways to just drop a cryptic hint that you better think clearly about who this man is. And they just leave it there and leave you to think about it. So we want to examine a few places in which the Bible drops such hints. Let's take this one. The fact that the Bible seems to present here a man who seems to be sinless. You know, he challenged the people to convict him of sin. Remember that? No one, not one person raised her hand and said, Ah, oh, on the other day, I saw you doing that. Not one. When he says, Which one of you convict me of sin? It was a pin drop of silence. At the end of his life, he could say, I have kept all my father's commandments. So which one of us could say that? And Pilate, Pilate actually concluded that I find no sin in this man. And Peter says, he is a lamb without blemish. And the Hebrew, the book of the Hebrew says, he, he has been tempted on all counts, and yet without sin. I like what John Stott says here. And I think Stott puts it very eloquently. Stott says, we may read of his temptations, but we hear nothing of his sins. He was continually telling others to repent of their sins, but never once did he repent of his own sins. 
He showed no consciousness of any moral failure on his part. He appears to have no feelings of guilt. He doesn't have a sense of estrangement with God. See, it is a universal experience that the closer you get to God, the more conscious you are of your sins. Let me say that I would be the first to admit this. The times, the seasons in my own life when I have been nearest to God, those were the seasons that I was so acutely conscious of my own dirt, my own pollution, my own sin. So let me say this again. People who are near to God feel very acutely their own sins, just underneath the skin. There never is a man who walked as closer to God as this man, and yet he carried no moral guilt, no sense that he has failed. Again, he's not necessarily standing up and saying, look at me, I'm God. Just facts about his sinlessness were just dropped all over the place for you to pick up. But there's more. What about this phenomenon that he seems to know everything? And does he not seem to know everything? He knew the thoughts of his friends. He knew the thoughts of his enemies. He could read the mind of Nathaniel. You remember that? Nathaniel was about 300 meters away from him. And he could read his mind. That's in John 1:47. He knew the Samaritan woman had five husbands. How did he know that? He knew that Lazarus was already dead, even before he arrived. And he knew that Judas will betray him. And he knew that Peter will deny him. In fact, Jesus knew everything that was about to happen. The Word of God says he knew all men. He knew what was in men. Again, no direct claim here that I'm God. But just hands dropped all, all over the place. What about this? Perhaps this is the most puzzling thing of all about him. And that is this combination. It's very hard to understand. This combination of self-centeredness and selflessness. It's very hard to find this in human people today. At least I haven't come across a man or a woman who has this combination of, of, of self-centeredness as well as self-forgetfulness. In his words, he can be so thoroughly self-centered. In his deeds, he can be so thoroughly selfless, isn't it, when you think of Jesus. In his teachings, he is so full of himself. In his actions, he cared nothing for himself. That's a quandary, really, when you come to think of it. He's so self-assured, so self-assured. He's so self-assured of himself, and yet so full of self-sacrifice. He knew he was the Lord of all the universe, and yet he became their servant. He picked up. He, he knew that he was going to be the one who will finally come to judge the world, and yet he picked up a towel and a basin of water, and he began to wash the people's feet. Think of this: thinking himself to be somebody, he acted like he was nobody. This is a quandary. Believing himself to be the son of God, he acted like a slave. No human person could have such an equilibrium of thought and conduct. Just what you would see if he was indeed God in human flesh. 
Now, he may not necessarily stand up and say, I am God, but he said some of the most incredible things about himself. So that you either begin to question his sanity or you begin to question his humility. He called himself the eternal, he, or rather he called the eternal God his father. I mean, uh, he announced that the long expected kingdom of God will soon be ushered in and then he will occupy its chief place once it is instantiated. He claimed to be able to forgive people their sins and this invited the wrath of the people. They accused him of blasphemy because who can forgive sin? If I see Joel punching Will on the nose, not that Joel would do that. But if I see Joel punching Will on the nose, and I go up to Joel and say, Joel, I forgive you. You guys would say, oh, what's, what's happening here? It's, it's up to Joel. It's up to Will to forgive Joel, not up to me. And yet that was what Jesus did all the time. He sees wrong going on. He says, I forgive you. The woman caught in adultery. He says, I forgive you. The leper, I forgive you. The paralyzed man, he says, stand up, your sins are forgiven. He claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed to be the only way to God. He did not teach people to go to God. He invited people to come to him. One day, he walked into a synagogue in Nazareth. You know that story very well. He read from a passage from the book of uh, Isaiah. And when he finished, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And all the eyes were gazed upon him. And this was what he said. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why would a human person say that? That in the reading of scripture... That very reading sees the fulfillment of that scripture. And he shocks his hearers by saying that he's going to come back one day and judge the eternal destiny of every woman, every man, and every child. See, the point we often miss is this. That the disciples who believed in him were the ones who were closest to him. They were the ones who ate with him walked with him, slept with him. They were the ones who saw God in him. You know something? If you set out to claim that you are God, <laughs> if you should set out to claim that you are God, the first people you would not try to convince is your brothers, your sisters, your uncles, your mom, your dad, because they see right through you. They know you long enough. They've seen you warts and all. And you know something? Jesus began with those who are closest to him. And these are the testimonies of those who are closest to him, who walked with him, who ate with him. Peter said he's a lamb without blemish. Gloria can say that of me. Gloria sees me full of blemishes. Blemishes you don't even know, you don't exist. She knows it all. John says in him there is no sin. John ate with him. John walked with him. And yet John says, in him there is no sin. Now this is the same John who said, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. And this is the John who says, he has no sin. Even Judas. Judas, just before he hanged himself, 
he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. So consistently those who were closest to him saw no sin in him. The point I want to make is this. If the Christmas message is not true, if he is not Emmanuel, God with us, then all these things are inexplicable, unexplainable. Far easier to conclude that he is indeed the Emmanuel than to go around and try to explain all these facts. Have you ever thought, I'm not sure whether you have, but I've thought about this many times in my own life, but have you ever thought that somehow, by sheer instinct, you just can't get Jesus to be categorized under other, amongst other great human people on earth? Have you never thought of this yourself? That for some reason, if you were to write down a list of great people of this world, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, Winston Churchill, Alexander the Great, Jesus Christ, could you do that? You can't. None of us could seem able to include Jesus in the list of all the great people. There's something within us that says, oh, somehow not right to just consider him amongst one of the world's greats. We may talk about Alexander the Great, we may talk about Napoleon the Great, but we can never bring to our lips the words Jesus the Great. We just can't do that. We just know somehow it's not right. You know instinctively that he stands apart from all the world's great. John's daughter quotes Charles Lamb as saying this, if Shakespeare were to walk into this room, you would all rise to meet him. But if Christ were to walk in here, we should all fall down and worship the hem of his garment. And he's right. He stands apart from the greats of the world. For us this morning, how may we respond to this word Emmanuel? I think we've got to think very carefully of that one word Emmanuel. It's the word I want you to think about anyway today. It means God with us. But what really does it mean, God with us? Think about this very clearly. Think about what it implies for you today. If there is one thing that is most irritating about Christianity, that's most annoying about Christianity, it is its exclusivity. Many people cannot swallow the demands of Jesus when he tells us that he alone as the way to God, especially modern culture. Modern culture will not, get, will not allow you to get away with saying that Jesus alone is the way to God. Remember he once said, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And then he adds this, anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, this is the irritating part about Christianity that people outside could not accept. They find this most annoying, that someone should demand total loyalty from you, total allegiance from you. He is, after all, just a man. What right has he got to demand such allegiance from us? But let me explain. Let me explain why he could do this. Virtually every single religion out there, and I was a Buddhist before, and I should know this very well, all religion out there say, if you're good, if you're moral, if you don't break 
the commands of God, then God will accept you. You will go to Him. Virtually every single religion says that if you're good, if you're moral, that's good enough. You can make it to heaven. Morality and goodness are good enough. Then comes along this man from Nazareth. And he says something very troubling. He says, your morality, all your good acts are never good enough. I have come to die for you. So that if you pin all your hope on me, you will be reckoned. You will be counted by God as having been completely right, completely honest, completely righteous. Now, people everywhere find this a bitter pill to swallow. They would always say, how exclusive can you get? How narrow can you get? I get this spoken to me all the time when I present Jesus as the only way to God. And I hear this all the time, how narrow can you get? You know something? If you were dying of cancer, and I come along, and I claim to have the real cure that I have discovered for cancer, and that if you would only take this pill, you'd be healed of your cancer. Think about that. What if I truly came to tell you this? What would your response, your response be? I doubt you would say, oh, how narrow are you to think that you alone have the cure? What about all the other doctors? I doubt you would say that. I think what you would say is, well, I'm not sure, because I'm desperate for life. I am dying, but you've got this pill in your hand. Well, the only way to find out is, is to take it, and that would prove to me whether you're right or whether you're wrong. See, your response is one of whether I'm right, whether I'm wrong. Your response is never one of whether I'm narrow-minded or broad-minded. That's not in the category at all. Not at all. You want to know, you are desperate enough, desperate enough to know if I'm right or if I'm wrong. But you will not say that I'm narrow. You will not say that. Because your life hangs on the thread. Maybe the medicine I give you will save you. Maybe it will not. But I'm not simply being narrow-minded. I'm simply making a claim. And the way to test my truthfulness is to test it out, to see if I spoke the truth or not. So every other religion says, be good, be kind, and you'll be saved. And Emmanuel comes and he says, being good will not save you. You're way past being saved by yourself. If I hadn't come to save you, you wouldn't be safe. You don't need more knowledge about God. You don't need another guru to teach you. You don't need another teacher. All you need is to place your trust on me and you will be saved. And for that, my Father will accept you. So this is the claim of the Messiah. But some people would come along and they would say, I'm a little interested in Christianity. And maybe, maybe there's one of you here this morning. You're saying, mm, I'm not sure about this whole thing, but I'm a little interested in Christianity. But I'm not prepared to give up everything. There are things that are absolute to me. And I won't, I won't give that away. I can't give that away. So, okay, I may think about Jesus, but this is absolute for me, how I spend my money, 
This is absolute to me, that I will say, I, I, I can get myself to say no sex before marriage. Uh, I, I'm not prepared to think that way. And this other thing is, is, is an absolute for me. So you come to Jesus and you say, mm, I have this, it is absolute for me, not non-negotiable. I have this and it's a non-negotiable. You know something? You're having, a heap, you're having heaps of absolutes in your life. And when you have heaps of absolutes in your life, you can't have that one true, absolute, absolute. You can't have that. And that is precisely what the Emmanuel wants from you. To say that, yes, I will subject myself to everything under you. Who is the Emmanuel? Who is Jesus? That's the most important question you could ever ask in your life. There is no other question more important than this. Because it will determine what he thinks of you. Someone says, what you think of Jesus is a boomerang question. It's a boomerang question because it comes flying back. It comes flying back. Because what you think of Jesus will ultimately determine what he thinks of you. I wonder who it was who says, there are only two kinds of people on earth. Those who say to God now, your will be done. And those to whom God will one day say, your will be done. So the Emmanuel is God with us, and what we think of him has eternal consequences. Because in the end, it is a moral question, what you think of Jesus. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for every reminder of the coming of the Messiah, of the coming of the Emmanuel, God with us. Father, it is so humbling to know that you would choose to, to envelop yourself in human flesh and to come to earth and for 33 years walked with human people and to show yourself to us. And Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us through your Son, Jesus. In him, we see the Emmanuel. We see Messiah. We see you walking in our midst. Give us grace this Christmas to believe, we pray. Give us faith to hang on, we ask. And Father, in this Christmas period, may we be very generous with our time, with our money. Uh, may we have more people come into our houses, into our homes, into our lives, that they too may discover you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.